So September 1st, 2019, Dublin, Ireland, and we're going to be looking at fellowship with devotees. Um, okay, so looking at fellowship with devotees, which you do not have a handout for. So many times people ask, you know, if I could choose one thing that would really accelerate my spiritual life, that would really be helpful to my spiritual life, what, what could it be? You know, as we say in America, where could I get the biggest bang for the book? You understand that expression? Yeah. You know, spend the least amount of money and get the, the best benefit. So are, are there some things in spiritual life where if I do them, they, they just act kind of like jet fuel? Get connected to a senior devotee who, is, who inspires you? Yes, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a number of answers to that question. I mean, one answer to that question is chant the holy name with attention, for example. That's definitely one of the answers to that question. Uh, and there's, there's five potent items of devotional service where Rupa Goswami says they're so powerful that even a little contact with them can bring a neophyte very quickly to perfection, which is the whole... What are they, anyway? The five potent items. Mm, no. Being a, living or being in a holy place. Sadhu Sangha. associated with devotees. Chanting. Chanting, holy name. Literature, especially Bhagavatam, and deity worship. So those five are considered the five most potent items of all of the different limbs of bhakti. They're not considered the most important. The most important have to do with accepting a guru, but they're considered to be the most potent. And so we're going to look at one of them, which is sadhusanga, which is association with devotees. And, of course, there's this very famous verse that Mahaprabhu says, sadhusanga, sadhusanga, sarva, shastra, koya, Lava Matra Sadhu Sangha Sarva Siddhi Hoya. That if you have just an eleventh of a second association with a saintly person, you can get all perfection. That's a pretty good bang for the buck. You know, eleventh of a second association with a saintly person, you can get all perfection. So that's we're going to look at that one today. And again, this is not the only thing in bhakti that can be the thing but it's one of the things that can be the thing, that if you get this right, everything else just comes from this. It accelerates our spiritual life. And it, it then leads to everything else. So, Srila Prabhupada, uh, in the purport of Nectar of Instruction, text 4, which is about the six loving exchanges between the devotees, says two very interesting and perhaps astonishing things. He says, The International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between the devotees. So this sentence he's giving basically as the purpose for ISKCON. Now, one of the seven purposes of ISKCON talk about bringing the members closer to each other, bringing the members closer to Krishna, the prime entity, and closer to each other. But it's very interesting in this statement in Nectar Instruction 4, where he says, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness has been established to facilitate these six kinds of loving exchanges between devotees. So, of course, this is something that we can only get in a society. If we look at the other four most potent items, we could chant the holy name by ourselves. 
we could live in a holy place by ourselves, or we could establish a holy place in our own home by ourselves. We can worship the deity by ourselves. We could study the scripture by ourselves. So the only thing we really need a society for is sadhu sangha. I mean, obviously the society facilitates everything else as well. But what, what do we really need a society for on an individual spiritual level is sadhu sangha. On a mission level, it's very difficult to have a mission if everybody's acting alone. Some kind of coordination is very helpful for the mission. But in terms of our own spiritual advancement, uh, having a society is essential for sadhu sangha. Then also Srila Prabhupada, in that same purport, says the life of the Krishna conscious society is nourished by these six types of loving exchange among the members. So this is the food. It's the nourishment of our society is having these loving exchanges. So if we look at what are the benefits, what are the benefits to associating with devotees? Can anybody think of what some of the benefits would be? Yes. Knowledge. Okay. I gain knowledge. You know, that's important because on the one hand, Prabhupada talks about in a very non-sectarian way how one can attain love of God in any bona fide tradition. But it's very difficult to attain love of Krishna as Raja Raj in Vrindavan without any knowledge of Vrindavan. I mean, it's possible you could be a Catholic you know, a follower of Catholicism, and Krishna can just reveal to you his form as the cowherd boy in Vrindavan. I'm sure that's happened. But it's a lot more difficult for people in the Catholic Church to attain the form of the Lord as the cowherd boy in Vrindavan because they don't know about it. They don't have any knowledge. Like Jesus has said, in my Father's house there's many mansions. You know, okay, what, is, what does that mean? So yes, we get knowledge from the devotees. What else? Another benefit. Yes? Oh, how does that work? By, by discussion, we all just remember. Oh, okay. So what, when the devotees talking with each other helps yeah. us to remember Krishna. Okay, so other benefits. Yes? Kind of looking what other people do and kind of other you're saying, like mimicking kind of, you know, as a... As a yeah, that, that, that's, house, that's so important because, you know, I've got what's in the scriptures, but how does that work? The, the devotees make the scriptures come alive. That they can show us, how do I take the scriptures and put them into practical life? Now that's true when I read about devotees in the scripture itself. But it's also true when I'm working with devotees contemporarily. That I can see, oh, that's what it means. The scripture talks about be humble. Well, I, don't, I don't know what it means to be humble. But I see a humble devotee and I think, oh, okay. It gives me a template. He gives me an example, and that, that's extremely important. Some other... Yes, do you have one? I get to serve the devotees. Oh, very nice. And why do I want to serve the devotees? Yes, it goes to Krishna. Krishna is pleased when you serve the devotees. Right? You see someone on, on the street walking a dog. And if you say, oh, that's a very nice dog, they're very happy. <laughs> right? And socially you can do that. You can't really go up to a stranger and go, that's a nice suit you're wearing. But you can say, that's a gorgeous dog. And they're very happy. You know, those of us with children, we know if someone does something nice for our child, 
we're much happier than if they do it for ourselves. Yes? Of course, this principle always made it a little difficult as a teacher because sometimes you have to tell the parents something negative about their child. You know, it happens. And you can make enemies for life. You know, just if you say, sorry, your child was misbehaving today, you know, and then they hate you. So it was... You know, but it's that principle that love me, love my child, love my, love me, love my dog. So when we serve the devotees, Krishna is much more pleased than when we serve him directly. This is, I think, it's a general principle. Yes. Some other thoughts about the benefits. Yes. When we, when we meet as a group, we can, each of us can take topics from the Bhagavatam mm. and prepare it and give a talk on it. Oh, that's very nice. So we, we can each share our own individual realizations. Yes. Yes. I had an experience years ago in New Zealand at a, a retreat for ladies where it was mostly disciples of Deva Swami, and he asked most of his disciples to read Prabhupada's books at least two hours a day. And so most of the ladies who were there were doing that. So they asked me, can you please give a seminar on how to study Srila Prabhupada's books? And what I did was I had all the women, maybe 20, 25 people sat in a circle and we just went around and I said, each one of you say, how do you study Prabhupada's books? And it was fascinating because each of them had a different method. And some of them were very creative. One of the women said, well, I look at the Sanskrit and I try to think of other verses that have the same words and I connect to those verses. And someone else said, I take the verse and I make it into a song and someone else said, I take the verse in purport and write it as questions and answers and put it on my blog. And so everyone had it, it was, it was unique. And it was, it was so enlivening for each person to share how they approach the scripture. Or for each person to share their realization on scripture because we're all unique individuals. And it, it enriches us, doesn't it? Right? When we, when we hear different people's personal realization... I I've, uh, had the great pleasure in London of going to the house of Krishna Dharma and Chintamani Dham and being part of their own particular study method of the Bhagavatam. And I said, well, I want to use this in a group. They said, it's not possible. But I'm the kind of person that if you say it's not possible, I get very excited. So I then went to the Soho temple and I used their method indeed to... to I couldn't do it exactly the same. I had to adapt it somewhat but I used their method with the whole group of whatever it was, 50, 60 devotees. And one of the things that came out of it is everyone had their own realization and their own understanding of the same sentence in the purport. And it was so exciting. I found myself thinking about that class for months afterwards. And many, many devotees emailed me about that class. It just brought everything out. It was so exciting. That's what Krishna says, right? Ramanticha, tushanticha, ramanticha. What's another reason that we get, another benefit we get? Yeah. Development of faith. Development of faith. And I see that when we see devotees who've been through difficult times and how they rely on Krishna, how they use the difficult times in their life to go deeper into their Krishna consciousness gives us a lot of faith. When we see devotees making progress in Krishna consciousness, I mean, one of the main ways we get faith is we see oh, it's working for this person, it's working for that person. We see how it's actually changing someone. And that gives us faith. Yes. Also, it gives us faith with other devotees when we're having some question or whatever and we go to a devotee and they can solve our problem. 
so they may help it's, oh, they have another perspective right and from their perspective our, our faith increases in ways that wouldn't have happened just on our own somebody had something over here How does that work? Like um, cooperation, and like if you feel like lonely sometimes, you want mm. to do something, and sometimes you don't like when you, you are in a group. Like some people are doing it, you get more motivated. Ah, okay. So we get inspired and motivated by working together in service. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. Very nice. Yes. And in this group, we all prepare different prashans at home. And we bring, bring it and have it together. Uh-huh. That's, that, that's, that's what they call synergy. Yes, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, you know, we call that in America potluck. What do you call that here? When everybody brings a prep? It's a slang, actually. So it's used, You also call it potluck. Uh -huh. So, yeah, we have... I've been in... No? You have, do you have another term? We don't. You don't have a term for it. Oh, well, that's awful. <laughs> I want to invent one. So, uh, bring a prep, okay. So, uh, bring a prep party. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes we have... Uh, I, I've been especially in communities where there's not really that much of an organized temple, and so all of our big feasts are bring a prep pre feasts. And, you know, it, it, we end up having usually a much nicer feast than if you had just a temple with a few cooks trying to make all the preps because each person just brings one prep but they really make it nice, right? So that, you know, Krishna's very much like that in general. On, on one plant, are each, is each leaf the same on one plant? Yeah, each flower... Are they all exactly the same, even on one plant? No, it isn't. Yeah, look, look, at a, look at a tree or a plant, and you'll see that even on the same tree, even on the same plant, each leaf is different, each flower is different. What to speak from one kind of plant to another? You know, Prabhupada talks about you have a, a vase. Do you call it a vase or a vase? Either. Okay, you bought that. That's good. So you have a vase of flowers, and you also have some greens. You may have a variety of flowers and then there's some greens. And having this variety, so this is the, the beauty of the spiritual world is like that. There's an infinite variety. Of course, even in this world, there's practically an infinite variety. Like each snowflake is different, which is interesting because you think, well, who's looking at the, each of the snowflakes? You know, but they're, they're each different and they're each a work of art, each snowflake. So yes, when we have the association of devotees, then what we have to offer to Krishna and how we relate to each other is so much more beautiful and, and enjoyable. Prabhupada says varieties of other enjoyment by the different individual tastes and different individual talents and different individual perspectives. That's very nice. Not everybody appreciates that. There are some people who think the world would be better if everybody was exactly like them. But uh, that, that's not the way that Krishna is, is at all. You know, he's just this infinite variety person. Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. Somebody else benefits. Yes? You know, so we can practice all the, like, the, the six uh, things that devotees do and in Sangha, so we can offer gifts and... Um, okay, it gives us an opportunity to do these... Opportunity to... To do the six loving exchanges, very nice. Some other thoughts? 
already moved on to the, the negative? Or is that my job to one? I wasn't actually going to do negative, okay. but if you want to present <laughs> one, I'm, I'm up for it. Go ahead. Well, well as much as, as much as we talked earlier about keeping Krishna in the center being the, being the impetus, where something was back there and not back there, um, in the same way, because you're physically chanting Hare Krishna, or because you're physically dressed or not dressed like a body, sometimes it's not enough that if the, I've been in environments, and historically speaking, where the devotees talk get together to watch television, or Sadasanga. It's not Sadasanga, because there's not Krishna wasn't in the center now. If you're going to watch television with anybody, probably better watch with devotees than, than, than none. But that there has to be context behind it. Um, mm. But I also found, and uh, I'm talking about a personal historic experience report, there was a lack of uh, real leadership. So there was a bunch of people right to um, live together in a rural environment. They went really wrong because there was no understanding uh, or leadership or, or anyone qualified within it to, to um, you know, so therefore... Well, I think what you're talking about, we will get to when we talk about the loving exchanges. Okay. So I don't see that as negative or positive particularly. Um, Just like things like politics or creating your own philosophies, you know, these also then became that same association became a, a negative environment. And then, if you take into consideration that making offense against the devotee is the matter Well, that's interesting when you talk about making offense against the devotee. One of my good friends says, you know, devotees are dangerous. <coughs> and he said, uh, you know, by, this, by 11th of a second association with devotees, you can get all perfection, but you make a little offense against devotees, you're going to have all destruction. Sure. So, you know, it is kind of a double-edged sword. But I think when we look at, I, I do have, you know, it's funny that you're saying this, that you asked me about negative, because one of the things I know as a teacher is that some people are more motivated by negative and some people are more motivated by positive. So we're all motivated by both, but each of us have a preference. So some of us are much more motivated by what's the positive things that I can attain and other people are more motivated by what's the negative things that I can avoid. If you're only positive, you know, then you're not going to live very long because you're just, you know, you're never going to see the bad sides to anything and you'll bungee jump off a cliff and kill yourself, you know. And if you're, if you're only negative, you'll never try anything and you'll never get out of bed. So it's not possible to only motivate ourselves by negative or only motivate ourselves by positive. And as a teacher, I make an effort that in every class I present, I present some negatives and some positives so that I'm going to be able to relate to everyone in the room because I don't know what's, what's more pushing different people. And it's funny you say that because this is an entirely positive class. <laughs> Except for the very last thing. I have one negative at the end. So after giving a 99% positive class, I give a 1% negative at the end. So please forgive me. Somehow I didn't structure this knowing good pedagogy that I have to have some negative in a class. Um, but I, I think of what we can do, I'm, I'm very, very serious about this, by the way. I think what we can do is, you know, when we look at the six loving exchanges, I do there look at what's bad examples and what's good examples. So I have some, some negative there. But I don't go quite as, as far as where you're going, and I don't know if I want to today, if that's okay. Okay. Yeah, just, my question was, when does the Board Association become not the Board Association? I, I'd say when the six loving exchanges are done badly. 
is what I would say, is, is, is when, when those exchanges are done in a way that doesn't foster Krishna consciousness. And since you brought this up now, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. But I, I, I think, as you brought this up now, I think I'll also say something that I, I think is very significant that Prabhupada told to Yamuna. So Yamuna had basically just gone off by herself with her friend, Dina Tarni, and the, just the two of them were living just separate from any other ISKCON temples. And there were other devotees that were criticizing them to Srila Prabhupada. So Yamuna went and talked to Prabhupada personally, and she said, Prabhupada, maybe we shouldn't live there anymore. Maybe we should move closer to a temple. And Prabhupada said, you Westerners are so restless, you always want to change things. And she said, but Prabhupada, aren't we supposed to be in ISKCON? And Prabhupada said, wherever anyone's chanting Hare Krishna, that's ISKCON. She said, what about devotee association? He said, if two are compatible, that is good association, and if 200 are not compatible, no one will make any advancement. So I think you're looking at situations of incompatibility here. And, yeah, I think we're looking at situations of incompatibility. And you're probably looking at situations where different people were at different levels. You were talking earlier about levels and being authentic. You know, what's enlivening sadhu sangha for a person on one level and a person of a certain mentality is going to be dragged down sadhu sangha for a person in another level and another mentality. Just like I had that realization of, of trying to get somebody, trying to force somebody off of the platform of ordinary duties to a more transcendental platform. And I can understand, you push this person off the platform of ordinary duties, they're going to fall down into irresponsible life. You just keep them on the ordinary duties platform and walk away. And so different devotee, different levels of people need to enliven each other at that level. It, it's something that may be difficult to accept sometimes. And one way perhaps we can accept that is that there are a lot of people higher than me who are looking at me and saying, what a shame that Urmila has to be enlivened at such a low level. You follow? You know, I can look at someone and go, wow, they, they, the only way they can be enlivened is on the level of mundane duties. What a shame. And someone else is looking at me and going, oh, wow, that's pretty, sh-, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe there's some people that the only way they have sadhu sangha is they watch a movie together and it reminds them of something in Mahabharat. And that's, that's the best they can do. I mean, no, no really seriously. Yeah. That maybe for those people, that's the best they can do. They're going to watch the movies anyway. And so, let, you know, they can watch it with somebody who says, oh, yeah, you know, this reminds me of Parasarama. This reminds me of Arjuna or something like that. Like Prabhupada talked about the person drinking alcohol. And he said, if the person drinking alcohol says, Krishna's the taste of my alcohol, eventually he'll become a great saintly person. Now, that doesn't mean that we should all go out and drink alcohol. But if someone's already drinking alcohol, then you say, hey, you know, find Krishna the taste of your alcohol. So it's this, again... People, where, where are you? Where is somebody? How can they connect with Krishna where they are? And therefore we're going to have, in, in our very successful devotee communities, you'll find that people will kind of, well, they say water seeks its own level. The people will kind of gravitate to those, those people that can deal with them. That, that's also there. So we can talk about what is, what is the ideal form of sadhu sangha. This is something we talked about yesterday. You know, what, what's the best, and then what's the best for me? 
And I, what I also find is that when I'm associating with different devotees, we talk about different things. You know, I have certain people that when I'm with them, it's all Shastra. Certain people when I'm with them, it's all Lila, Guna Rupa, Lila. Certain people, it's all about what their service is, what they're doing, what their family's doing. You know, it's just, that's what it is. You know, and, and if, if you try to push something somewhere, it doesn't. I have certain people that if I ask them how their family's doing, they're like, why are you talking about mundane things? <laughs> Tell me what you read today. <clears throat> so it's... That's also... That's also there. But that exchange with, between Prabhupada and Jumuna I find very extraordinary. Yeah. So if two people are compatible, that's Sadhusanga. And if 200 people are not compatible, no one is making any advancement. Wow. Huh? Maybe as a Maybe they're not progressing at all. They may be falling, moving back. Then. They may even be falling back, yes. Yeah. And, oh, this is going to be controversial. You know, there was that astrologer that said that Prabhupada made a house in which the whole world could live, but houses don't usually just have one room. You know, there's, there, there's sometimes this, this thing that we should all cooperate means that everybody should associate with everybody all the time. And it just... That doesn't happen in Goloka. You know, it happens when Krishna lives Govardhan Hill, everybody's together. When Krishna's in Kaliya, Skoyal's, everyone's together. When Krishna's going to Matra, everyone's together. But generally, Krishna's with different groups of devotees at different times. Like if you look at the Asakamila, you know, he's got two times of the day where he's mostly with the elders, two times of the day he's mostly with his boyfriends, and two times of the day he's mostly with the gopis. So, you know, and he's got half the day he's in the forest and half the day he's in the village. So Krishna's with different groups of devotees and they, they don't all mix all the time. They have different moods. Sometimes they don't like each other. <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting thing because we don't want to put on that something from our perspective in this world of not liking each other. That's, that would be a false idea. So sometimes they really don't so much appreciate the way that person wants to serve Krishna. Because it's it's the opposite to the way they want to serve Krishna. So like some of the cow, the coward boys they insult Krishna and some of the coward boys they're very submissive with Krishna. And they you know, they they like the way they're dealing with Krishna. And for some of them it may be hard for them to understand how Krishna appreciates this other service. But they accept that Krishna does, but they don't really relate to it. They accept, oh, Krishna loves us. I mean, often the way, the way Rupa Goswami explains it is often they'll just think, oh, Krishna is so merciful that he's loving and accepting that kind of service. But he, the service I do, he likes much better. He doesn't like that as much, but out of his kindness, he's accepting it. How wonderful my Krishna is that he's accepting that service. So Rupa Goswami says that they, that's how they see it. But there's, there's no envy and there's no malice. So like is just a wrong word. I'm not saying it's the wrong word, but just be careful of the connotations that we have connected with that. You know, some of the some of the statements that we'll read in the books of the Acharyas about 
some of these different groups, how they talk about each other, we, we might think like that. Or there was, there's a place in the first canto where Prabhupada talks about Akura and his father-in-law and said they were both pure devotees, but they didn't get along. But, you know, again, we may put on that something from this world that where I don't get along with someone or I don't like somebody, there's, it, there's some kind of pain involved with that. Whereas spiritually, everything's joyful. And everyone has the same center. There isn't really a conflict. The way that we experience conflict here. I mean, here we have, in one sense, real conflict because we have a different center. My center is me. And there's no one else who has me as the center except for me. I'll guarantee you that. Even my very good friends and my very close family members, their center is not me. And very regularly, Krishna makes that quite clear to me. Like I was speaking to one of my grandsons yesterday, and he said, oh, by the way, my brother just got a job. And I'm thinking, why didn't he tell me? Why didn't he share that news with me? Well, obviously, I'm not the center of his world. You follow? And if I said, hey, why didn't you tell me you get a job? Oh, I was busy, Grandma, you know. I meant to tell you, whatever. It's not malicious. It's just that I'm not the center of his world. Whereas in the spiritual world, Krishna is the center of everyone's world. Everyone has the same center. Everyone has the same interests. So there's a deep oneness and a deep harmony that we just don't experience materially. Materially, we experience a very fundamental disharmony. So the, the contrast between that there's different devotees who want to serve Krishna in opposite ways and that they can't really relate to that opposite way of serving Krishna is very, very different from here where we factually have different centers. Yet we, we actually have different interests. We have different priorities. I am my highest priority. But I am nobody else's highest priority. Everybody else has themselves as their highest priority. So that that's it, it's just it's so radically different that we want to be a little careful. I mean, we can have some idea. Like Robert says, there's different political parties, but they're all working for the good of the country. And if there's a common enemy, they all join together. We could have some little idea like that. Or, you know, like in, in ISKCON, we can, you know, one person's emphasizing cow protection, one person's emphasizing prasadam distribution, one person's emphasizing gurukul education but we were all have the commonality of Lord Chaitanya's mission. But again, it, it, it's some idea because we, we do have actual enmity between people with different emphasis. Does that help at all? But they will talk like that. They'll say, well, you know, Krishna doesn't really like that devotee service as much as he likes my service. But out of his kindness and his love for that devotee, he wants to be with that devotee. You see, if I say that here, there's all this pride that's mixed in with it. 
Whereas in spirituality, everyone is doing the service that they think is most pleasing to Krishna. That's why they're doing it. Everyone feels, I am in the best position. I get to be a flower in Krishna's garland because I'm in the best position. I get to be with Krishna all day. He leaves the parents in the village, then he leaves the gopis here, he leaves the coward boys there, but I'm with him all day. He likes my service the best. These other people, he takes their service and leaves it, he takes their service and leaves it, takes their service. But me, he takes my service all day. I have the best service. And I get to be a flower in the garland right by Krishna's earring, and his earring gets to touch me. So I, I have the best place in the garland. The flower that has that place at the bottom of the garland, it, it doesn't have the best place, it's kind of swinging around. But I'm touching Krishna's neck all day long, and I'm getting this sadhu sangha with the earring, and we talk to each other. So I have the best service. Every living entity is thinking, I have the best service. That's why they're in that situation. No one's thinking, well, that person has the best service, and oh, poor me, I just get to be the flower. So, yeah, but at the same time, they can appreciate the service of the other because there is a oneness. So they also can do that. They can feel the feelings of everybody else because there is a oneness. They can, you know, the, go- the young gopis can appreciate Mother Yasodas. Again, we can do this a little bit. We can do this a little bit here. We can go to a wedding and we can appreciate the love of the bride for the, of the, and the groom for each other even though we don't, hopefully, have a romantic attachment to either one of them. Hopefully. But still, we can appreciate their romantic love for each other. Yes, everybody's felt that way at a wedding. You can actually feel some of their feelings as if they were yours without their being yours. Yes? Or some kid gets an award and you're, you know, you, you, you're friends with the parents and you go to the award ceremony and maybe you don't have a parental relationship with the child, but you can feel some of the parental pride and love for their child as if it was yours, but it's not yours. So you have some sense that this is not mine. This is not my pleasure because it isn't my daughter. And yet you can experience some of that father's pleasure as if it was yours. Yes? Have everybody experienced this? So it's something like that. So everybody can experience everybody else's pleasure and appreciate it as being their pleasure and actually experience it as if it was their own pleasure and yet not want it to be their pleasure. Does that help? Did you all follow that? It was a little complicated. This is why the gopis can be 10 million times happier when Krishna's enjoying with another gopi. Because there's a oneness. Because they can appreciate They actually can feel it. They can actually experience it as if it were their own happiness. Because there's also a oneness, a chinchabedabeda tatva. We're also one. There is a oneness. We are also all one. We are simultaneously distinct individuals and we're all one. 
So the happiness that Krishna is having with any other living entity, we can experience as if he's having it with us. But there's still jealousy, though. I mean, I understand... Yeah, but that that, that jealousy is just simply because it's fun. Because it's what? It's fun. It's fun. You know, in this world, a man wants lots of women competing for him, or a woman wants lots of men competing for her. It's fun. The princess is like the swine bar where there's hundreds of men who want to marry them. You know, I mean, some guy would like to go down the street in his bright red convertible and have all the women in the street go. <laughs> <laughs> it would be that's why he has it. That's why he has it. Of course that's why he has it. So Krishna likes all these women competing for his attention. They're doing that just to please him. He's also very pleased when they have this attitude that they're happier when he's with someone else rather than them. Krishna Kaurava says this directly. You know, that the gopis are all thinking, I, they're, they're, they're feeling hundreds of times. says Radharani feels 10 million times more pleasure when Krishna enjoys with another gopi than when he's with her. So that's genuine. Because there's a oneness. That person's pleasure is my pleasure. That's love. You probably know what, what, what she's experiencing. Oh, they actually do. It, so. They actually do. Yeah. They feel it themselves. Whatever Krishna's enjoying with anyone, everybody feels that. At the same time, they everyone wants the opportunity to offer Krishna, offer Krishna what they can offer because they're the only ones who can offer it. Each of us has something to offer Krishna that nobody else can offer. And we know Krishna's not going to be happy unless he gets what I can offer him. Because nobody else can give it to him. He can give it to himself, of course. But, but there's no other jiva who can give Krishna exactly what I can give him. So everybody also wants their opportunity to offer to Krishna what they can offer. And if Krishna's not with them, they're thinking, my Krishna's not happy. He's not happy because he's not getting what I have to offer. He's missing that. And that's the jealousy. It's not jealousy about myself. In this world, it's jealousy about myself. You know, I'm not getting the attention of that man I like because he's with another person. I'm the one who's home lonely. Why does he know? Why does he love that other person more than me? And then I feel it's about my identity. Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not a worthy person. It's completely different. Spiritually, it's about my poor Krishna. He's not getting what I have. I'm the only one who can make him happy with what I have. He's missing out. Why does he have to be with them? He should be with me because I can give him this and they can't. And at the same time, there are millions of times happier that Krishna's having this love with this other devotee. Both those things are going on at the same time. I think it's just something that's unfathomable from a, from a materialistic point of view. We just, we just, you know, we're just kind of like, huh? It, it, it's, it, we can talk about it, but it, I think the only way we can actually understand it is to experience it. What is love? You know, in this world, the prophet says most of what we call love is just lust. 
It's what can you do for me? How do you make me feel? Do you make me feel special? Am I getting my desires met by you? That's a, and, and jealousy there is completely different. Now you're out meeting someone else's desires and I'm here unfulfilled. Now they got a bigger piece of cake than I got. Or they're getting cake more often than I'm getting it or something like that. You know, people kill each other over this way. Quite literally, every day. So it's, you know, one of the main reasons people kill each other. Especially romantic jokes. Huh? Just get a cake. Or cake. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it is, you know, land, gold, romance. It's, a, it's one of the main reasons that people kill each other. Yeah. Like, it's amazing how you always read on the news or you hear something, someone kills somebody else for this. It's like people never learn. You see, they're going to end up in prison <laughs> for their whole life. And yet, next day, there's someone else who did the same thing. <laughs> I find this is Like, you know those people going around punching people, soccer punching, it's called, like, from their back or something, they fall down, they break their head, they die, and they end up 20, 30 years in prison. Next week, same story. You're like, you know, see, if you do this, you get this. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. I, I didn't read the article, I saw a headline the other day that there was this huge fight over a beach towel. It's a very good beach towel. One of the children's books I wrote was called You Took My Towel. That was the name of the book. But I have no idea. But this is so, you know, we can't take this sort of thing that we experience materially and think that's what's happening in, in Goloka. There's something happening there of which this is is some sort of a reflection. But it, it's so qualitatively different. Like the comparison is iron and gold. They're both metal, but the, the qualities are completely different. And so the, the jealousy there is, is it's, it's, it, there's no malice. And there's no envy. And there's, there's no it's selfishness. Transcendental. It's transcendental, yes. Okay, so let's see if there's anything I wrote here as for a benefit that we didn't talk about. Um, oh, I have here, pleasing Krishna by cooperation. So there's a nice story of the Prachetas, the ten brothers who were cooperating, and Krishna was saying, I'm so pleased by your cooperation. So this is true, you're talking about leadership. So leadership, leaders are happy when the people that they are leading cooperate with each other. It's one of the big you know, sufferings of being in a leadership position when the people you're leading don't cooperate with each other. It's just this big energy suck. You know, or if you have several children and the children are fighting, you know, you want your children to cooperate. So this is, this is in all the religious scriptures of the world that God is pleased when we cooperate. So one benefit of being with the devotees is cooperation, to please Krishna. Another is to practice for life in the spiritual world. That, to deal with the other devotees in a way where we are practicing this mentality. We are practicing a mentality of taking pleasure in other people doing service, taking pleasure in other people getting praised and getting recognized for service. 
having other people's pleasure higher than our own, and at the same time, everybody helping each other in this way. And then, um, I think we, we talked about this, but in, inspiring us to get more attached to Krishna. So we talked about inspiring others in their faith, but also inspiring others in their attachment. Huh. Now, so far we've talked about association of devotees in a very general way, but I'd like to kind of bump up to another level, which is very appropriate considering your question, and that how is the association of devotees important on the higher levels of bhakti? So in the higher levels of bhakti, we know that there's, we start out, generally speaking, is how it works, we start out with what's called vaidhi sadhana, where we're practicing bhakti, and our motive for practicing bhakti is that we have faith in the scriptures and guru. So we're, we're doing bhakti primarily out of an intellectual, logical conviction with some taste and some experience of bhakti. And then at a certain point, our specific feelings for Krishna start to awaken and we start to feel, wow, I want to love Krishna as a friend or I want to love Krishna as a son or I want to love Krishna as my lover. And at that point, we, we segue into what's called Raganuga Sadhana Bhakti where we're still practicing bhakti but our impetus, instead of being the scriptural rules and regulations and our guru's instructions, the impetus starts being our specific relationship with Krishna. And as far as negative and positive impetuses, Vaidhi Bhakti tends to have a lot of negative motivation. You know, I don't want to be in the material world, I don't want to take another birth, the material world stinks. And, and one way you can ascertain, like people who are in Vaidhi Bhakti, is they'll speak a lot about what's wrong with Maya and what's wrong with the material world and what's wrong with materialistic consciousness because that's a lot of what's motivating them. And once you get to Raganuga Sadhana, people are much more likely to talk about how attractive Krishna is because it, they're much more being pulled towards Krishna than being pushed away from the material world. So one, that's one big difference between Vaidhi Sadhana and Raganuga Sadhana is what's one's motive. And this cannot be done artificially the, the motive of my relationship with Krishna has to wake up spontaneously. It cannot be forced. It's, it's just like becoming a child to an adult. It happens when it happens. For some people it happens when they're 12, for some people when they're 14, for some people when they're 16. And it just happens. You, you can't do anything to force it. So this also, this natural feeling for Krishna at one time awakens. So that's a difference between the two in terms of motivation. But there's also a difference in terms of practice. So the practice of Raganuga Sadhana is different from the practice of Vaidhi Sadhana, particularly in one main area. And that is once it awakens in one's own heart, oh, I want to be one of Krishna's friends. Then you specifically meditate not just on Krishna, but on Krishna's friends also. So in Vaidhi Sadhana, we're meditating on Krishna's devotees in a general way. In Raganuga Sadhana, one especially meditates on the devotees who have a similar internal feeling to oneself. And as one progresses in Raganuga Sadhana, that becomes more and more and more and more and more specific. So one starts realizing, oh, I follow Sri Dhamma, or I follow Madhumangal, or I follow Sudama. And one meditates on that specific personality. So I want to look very briefly, and then we're going to go to the six loving exchanges. I want to look very briefly at how Rupa Goswami explains we have this relationship with devotees on this platform of Raganuga Sadhana and then in perfection. So this is a little technical and if you don't remember the technical things, that's totally cool. 
So sometimes I include technical things for those who want the technical things and who want to remember them. And if you don't want to, it, it's fine. It, it's not an entry exam for Goloka. You know, so you don't, you don't need to worry about it. So what we talk about as far as rasa, rasa literally means a taste. Like on the tongue there are the rasas of sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and so forth. It means the, the sense of pleasure you get from, from something. Okay? So when we talk about rasas, we talk about five primary rasas. Right? What are they? So the, why don't we say them in English? Friendship. Friendship. Lover. Lover. Parent. Parent. Well, no, parent. Neutrality. neutrality and service and then there's seven secondary rasas anybody know those chivalry, chivalry which has four subparts anger, anger. Yeah. ghastliness or horror Heroism. that's that's chivalry hmm Oh, that was in one of the five primary. Fear, wonder, comedy, and compassion or sadness. So you can say, well, those don't sound very enjoyable, all of them. But even materially, we try to enjoy these. You know, how do people try to enjoy anger? They go to political rallies, or they go to sporting events. Yeah? Get that team! Get that team! They're enjoying anger. And people enjoy sadness. That's why they go to sad films. Yeah? Was that a good movie? Oh, it was a great movie. I love it. <laughs> you know, or, or ghastliness. People go to horror movies. Or if you say, oh, there's something disgusting. Oh, can I see it? <laughs> yeah, so there's that all of these things have there's some, there's some sort of pleasure in, in all of these things. And sometimes we think that these, these 12... The five primary and the seven secondary are in and of themselves rasa. But in order to have rasa, you have to have five components. So these things we just mentioned, the five primary and the seven secondary, these are what's called a stai bhav. So stai means to stay, like the English word stay or stable. Bhav means a feeling. These are things that are stable. So if you're a Krishna's friend, you're a Krishna's friend. That's your eternal, it stays there. It's the eternal flavor of your dealings with Krishna. But then there's four other components to rasa. One is called the sattvakabhav. Sattvakabhavs are involuntary expressions. So you might cry, you might shiver, you might be stunned. So these are things that just happen in the course of the relationship. Then there's anubhavs. Anubhavs mean things that you deliberately do. So you're Krishna's friend, you play a game with him. You give him some flowers. You joke with him. Those are the anubhavs. Then there is what we're going to talk about, which is the vibhavs, the, which we're going to talk about in a moment and explain what that is. And then there's, if I can remember, now I've forgotten. Oh, yes, the vyavichari bhavs. The vyavichari bhavs are transitory emotions. They're not the main emotion. So if you have a main emotion of parental relationship, you might feel some fear when Krishna's off in the forest. But you don't feel that when he's home. So you always feel parental, but sometimes you feel joy, sometimes you feel fear, sometimes whatever. So those are the Vyavitari bombs. So what we're going to look at right now is one, and all five of those have to be there for there to be rasa. 
There has to be a basic relationship that stays, involuntary expressions, automatic expressions of that relationship, voluntary expressions of that relationship, transitory emotions, and what we're going to come to right now, or the V-Bobs. So the V-Bobs are the cause of the relationship, what stimulates the relationship. And these V-Bobs are divided into two. So one is the, the basic support, which is called alumbana, and the other are the stimulus, which is called the uripan. I can see immediately I put some people to sleep when I get technical. So in the support or the alumbana, for every rasa, the enjoyer, the vishaya, is Krishna. And then there's the ashraya. The ashraya are other devotees who share a similar mood. So let, let's look at a material example. So I was waiting for a plane, which I do often, and I was uh, standing in the queue to get on the plane. And also in the queue, there was this beautiful little girl, two or three years old. A photographer once told me two years old is the, the, the height of cuteness in human beings. So she was like the, the height of cuteness, and she was dressed in some little costume, like, I don't know, a fairy or a ballerina or something. And she was just so adorable. And I assume it was her parents, mother and father were there, and they just had this super affectionate dealings with this child. So everyone's in the queue, and the child's kind of running around, you know, with her little costume, and running to the parents and away from the parents. And there was such affection between the parents and this child, and it at least seemed to me that everyone else in the queue was also focused on this child with affection. I mean, like, the whole queue was just full of these smiling people, all focused on this, this little girl. So we, and maybe there's someone who just hates children and didn't feel that way, but it, it looked to me like everyone in the queue was in this mood. So we all felt parental affection for this child. And that parental affection was stimulated by the child herself, but also by the relationship between the child and her parents. So how, her, how the parents were acting parentally stimulated us to also feel parental. You know, when you're in a group of friends, how some of your, let's say you have a, a best friend, you know, Mr. A, and how your other friends relate with Mr. A also helps your friendship with Mr. A. Everybody clear? Yeah? So it's like that. So the, among the vibhav, or the reasons why we feel this way about Krishna, there's always Krishna as the vishaya, and then the ashraya, the shelter, are the other devotees who have similar feelings. And the main thing that happens in Raghunuga Sadhana Bhakti is that we meditate on Vishaya, Krishna, along with the ashraya, the shelter, the devotee. So if you want to love Krishna the way Lalita and Vishaka do, you meditate on, on Krishna with Lalita. If you want to love Krishna the way Sridham does, you meditate on Krishna with Sridham. Is this, this clear? And this is essential. This is the essential practice of Raghunuga Sadhana Bhakti, without doing which one doesn't progress. So the, the, it's very essential at this stage of bhakti to have this relationship with a devotee, a particular devotee. Then we should also just mention that we talked about how Vibhav has two categories, right? the alambana or the support and the Vibhav or the impetus. So among the impetus, like you could say with this little girl, it was her age, her physical appearance, her little costume, were all also impetuses to that feeling of, of parental joy that we were feeling. 
So with Krishna, we are going to feel attracted to him because of his form, his age, his flute, his pastimes, and one of them are his devotees. So the devotees act not in the sense of it being the devotees in the same mood who are a shelter, but devotees in general may inspire us. So that's just a little indication. We talked about the benefits of devotee association in a general way at any stage, but this is the benefits of devotee association on the higher stages of bhakti. And that continues on into eternity. So I want to uh, spend the next half an hour talking about the six loving exchanges between the devotees. So we talked about the, the what and the why, and now we're going to talk about the how. How do we associate with devotees? Which in one way relates to what you were talking about. as to how to not associate with devotees. So these six loving exchanges really are a give and take in each of three categories. And what were the three categories? Gifts, prasadam, and confidences. Gifts, prasadam, and confidences. And each of them have a giving and an accepting. And it's interesting that sometimes we may prefer giving or sometimes we may prefer accepting. And I remember having a conversation with my husband where I said, you know, I don't like accepting anything. And he said, well, that's just pride. He said, you think you can do it all yourself? You know, and I'm like, oops. So there, there's value to both giving and receiving. You know, and also we make people very happy by receiving. So let's look first at gifts. And let's look first at receiving gifts. So I had a lesson when I was six years old that there must have been a sale on red tights. You know, tights are like like leggings. There must have been a sale on them. I got six pairs for my sixth birthday. And by the time I got the sixth pair, I started to cry. And my mother took me, you know, away from the party to my room and said, just say thank you. We can return them later and get some boots. So, to receive gifts graciously, even when it's not a gift that you want, right? And I just had an experience of someone doing this with me. I have a friend uh, whose daughter has cerebral palsy. You're familiar with cerebral palsy? Cerebral palsy is always the result of some kind of an accident. And uh, her child was born normal, and then the doctors didn't correctly diagnose what was happening to her, and so... She was four days old. She got cerebral palsy. And she's got a very, very bad case of cerebral palsy. I mean, I work with people with cerebral palsy that just have a limp. You know, whereas this girl, she's nonverbal. Uh, she has to be in a special wheelchair her whole life. I mean, she's, she's really got a lot of uh, very, very severe issues. And uh, the mother is, is very active on social media. And I know that she's posted things often saying, you know, don't give me medical advice. And don't think my daughter can be cured. It's an incurable condition, you know. But anyway, I, I, was, uh, I, I saw a book that was specifically about brain, healing the brain and retraining the brain. And it also mentioned cerebral palsy. And I thought, should I tell her or not? You know, is she just going to be fried or not? And so I even wrote to her and I said, look, I don't know if you're going to be happy with my saying this or fried with me. But this is a book that also deals with cerebral palsy. Because one of the things she would post about is, you don't know what my daughter's condition is. And many times you're suggesting something for another condition. So I sent it to her, and uh, she wrote back, and she sent back a little heart, and she said, well, thank you so much. And I said, you're actually grateful? I, I, I was really afraid I was going to offend her, you know. She said, you're, I said, you're actually grateful? She says, yes, what I accept is that you're being loving. 
And I'm like, whoa. Okay. So I thought it was just such a beautiful example of how to accept a gift. I mean, who knows if she'll ever look at the book or whatever. But I thought it was such a beautiful example of how to accept a gift, to accept that the intention, that there's some loving intention here, even if the gift is, is wi- wildly inappropriate or unneeded or cumbersome, you know, or whatever. Uh, so to accept gifts graciously, to remember that the person is trying to do something out of, out of love. And that can, you know, sometimes that's really challenging. Sometimes it's really challenging. And, and I think the most challenge I ever had with accepting a gift was when, uh, I, I travel very light, by the way. I, I just have carry-on luggage. I don't have really any extra room at all for anything at all. And, you know, I, I already know what I want to bring with me. And sometimes people give me a gift that I really, really, really appreciate and really, really use, but it's rare. So I had this one devotee, I was, uh, was in, uh, I won't say where it was. Anyway, I was somewhere. And uh, as I was getting in the car to go to the airport, which meant I couldn't give it to anybody, you know, she runs up to the car window, she said, I'm so glad I made it. She said, I've been working on this for you for months. She had traveled four hours by train to give me a gift of an all-white wool jacket that she had knitted herself. Very bulky, this really bulky. It was gorgeous. Now, maybe if I spent my whole time traveling in Siberia, I would have just taken it with me, but because I could have worn it all the time, but considering I, I go to a variety of climates, I had no room for it in my suitcase, and there was no way I could wear it all the time. I mean, it was, it was really thick and bulky. It was gorgeous. But that broke my heart. It really, really broke my heart. I mean, I accepted it, and I wore it with me to my next destination, at which point I gave it away. But it, it, just, it just devastated me that somebody had put that much time and, and care and, and love into doing something just for me that I couldn't keep and I, I couldn't use. Um, you know, sometimes what I'll do in cases like that is I'll have it mailed somewhere. But the only place I could have mailed it to, at that time, my, the only place I could have mailed it to was Hawaii. So that wouldn't have worked at all. I would never have had an occasion to wear that in Hawaii, except when I went up to the mountain, which was like once a year, I suppose. So, you know, it was, it was kind of difficult. And I, and I find that the greatest challenge with receiving gifts is when it's something where a person really did put a lot of care and thought, but I can't use it. And, and how do I deal with that in a way that honors their, their gift and at the same time, you know, honors my life and that I don't want to be dragging this little coat all over the world. So then in terms of giving gifts, I, I think particularly with my very unusual lifestyle that probably only a handful of people in the world can relate to, that I get a lot of wild, wildly inappropriate gifts. I mean, probably 95% of the gifts I get are, are so inappropriate that it's just like, I have to remind myself, Ormila, practically nobody on the planet has your lifestyle and they just can't relate to it and that's all there is to it. But to really try to give people gifts that, that they would like, that would be appropriate for them. And I mean, sometimes you're just kind of head-scratching. Like I remember we, we were at a devotee program where the devotees were exchanging gifts and someone gave my, my adult son a blue china dog like this high. A china dog that's blue, that's this high. And it's like... The guy has ten children. I mean, it's... You know, he's like, what am I, I going to do with this? So, you know, to really try to think about what would somebody 
like? What, what is something that somebody could use? You know, to, to take that kind of care. If I'm going to give a gift, to give a gift for that person. So, I mean, one example of a, of a wildly inappropriate gift that I got was one time a big framed picture, this big, by this big, the frame was this thick, with glass, of the local temple deities. And I was given this gift as part of a ceremony when I left because I, I went there to help them with a big project, myself and two other devotees. And so all three of us, who were all about to get on a plane for international travel, we were all given a picture of the local temple deities, this big, by this big, with this figure of frame, with glass. And I thought, first of all, even if I had a home, would I have room in my wall for a picture this big? If I did have room on my wall, would I want it to be a picture of the deities from this temple? And how can I possibly bring this on an airplane? It's glass. You know, what am I supposed to do? And they do know. And I thought if I had it shipped someplace, it would cost me a couple hundred dollars to ship the thing. And it was just sort of inconceivable to me that just like, why would you give this to someone who's about to get it on an airplane? So that was, that was one of the most extreme ones. And then I often get glass bottles of stuff. Glass bottles of honey, glass bottle. That's a big one. I get lots of glass bottles of honey, and I get uh, that's that's very common. Or, or big glass bottles of olive oil. So I, you know, I just give it to the local temple deities. But again, I wonder, you know, how am I going to bring this on an airplane? You know, and do you think that I I, I travel with a kitchen? And you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. So, you know, you sometimes get these these gifts, and you're thinking. Yeah. So to to think like that. And now my most extreme example, and I'm convinced that Krishna arranged this simply so I could tell this story. <laughs> and I always assume that none of you will believe me, but I swear to God, this actually happened. Okay, this is a real story. So I was in a place that shall not be named. And at the end of the class, this one woman came up to me and said, I'd like to give you a DVD of my guru, such and such, Swami. And it's a guru who's not a member of his country. So I thought, okay, I can't give it away to somebody. And I said, I don't have a DVD player. My computer doesn't have a DVD player, so I can't watch it. And I didn't say to her, talking about truthfulness, I didn't say to her, and I can't give this away either. Uh, I just said, I can't watch it. And she kept pushing. Finally, she said, I want you to have it. I said, okay, this isn't about me, it's about you. All right, so I took it and I threw it away. There was nothing else I could do. With regret. I always regret if I have to throw away a gift. It, 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 pain, it actually gives me pain. What could I do? Okay. So fast forward a little bit. I'm in another continent, another country. I'm giving this class. The same class that I'm giving now. Same notes, everything. And I come to this gift giving and I give this example. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you, get, you already guess what's going to happen. Yes. <laughs> That's why I'm saying, no one's going to believe this. You know, I have to video it or something, I don't know. So at the end of the class, a man walks up to me and he says, I'd like to give you a DVD. And I'm there kind of like, I don't have a DVD player. I can't play it. And he said, well, it's of a Mayavadi guru. <laughs> at least the first one was a Vaishnav guru. He said, he said, it's a Mayavadi guru, but I still think you would enjoy it. And I said, I don't have a DVD player. And he kept pushing, and then he finally said, but I want you to have it. Wow. It was the same. It was just like, whoa. 
And so I was really trying not to crack up when I was talking to this guy, and I took the DVD and I threw it in the trash. And I went back to my room and I thought, why, Krishna, he said to you, you can use it in your classes. So, you know, it was just such a bizarre situation. So to think about, I, I can't. So to think about, you know, what, what would be helpful for the other person? What would be helpful for the other person's life? To, to really give a gift, you know, not just you're trying to get rid of something. Or, <laughs> you know, somebody gave you a blue china dog and, and <laughs> passed it on. But you really think about what would be benefit. Because it's an exchange of love. You know, it's about, it's about an exchange of love. It's, it's not about, I am giving you a gift. You know, it's not about that. And, it, and for receiving, it's not about, hey, don't you care about me? And don't you care about what I need? But it's, it's, it's about appreciating the love in both directions. All right, now, prasadam is very, very similar. It's a very similar kind of thing because we each have our personal tastes. With gifts, it may be what we like and what we need. With prasadam, it's more about what we like. Although, to some extent, I'm sure it's about what we need. But it's the same kind of thing. You know, even in the spiritual world, the different devotees have different tastes. It says Krishna puts on each person's plate what they like. You know, Lord Chaitanya, when he's serving, he's serving everybody what they like. One time after a feast, I said to a devotee, this is wonderful prasadam. And she said, all prasadam is wonderful prasadam. <laughs> okay. Not glorifying prasadam around you again. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, when I'm receiving prasadam to remember that, you know, I'm not being served by a spoon, I'm being served by a person. To be appreciative for the person who's serving, to be appreciative for the cook, and even if I inadvertently get something that I don't like, to, to be gracious about it. Again, that's hard. I think it's hard to be gracious when someone's given you your most hated food on the planet. You know? It's just like, I would only eat that if I was dying of starvation. And you've just put it on my plate. And you've mixed it with the sweet rice. <laughs> you know, so to be, to be gracious when we receive prasadam and to remember that it is, it is prasadam and it is, it is Krishna's mercy. And then we're serving prasadam to remember we're not serving a plate, we're serving a person. And to genuinely try to find out what, what preps do they want or not want, not put something on their plate that they don't want, not give them the quantity that they don't want. You know, don't put the fig chutney on top of the sweet rice. Has that happened to me? The answer is yes. And, and there was something rotten in the fig chutney and I couldn't eat anything on the plate after that. So, you know, to, to, to be conscious again that I'm serving a person, that it is an exchange of love. If I'm, if I'm the cook, if I'm the server, you know, to, to really remember that that's, that's what this is about. Then on confidences. So on confidences, this I think is the most difficult. This is where we tend to be the most selfish rather than having a real exchange of love. So we talked about the five austerities of speech, and the most important one is... So we talked about it should be pleasing contact, not agitating words, beneficial. beneficial. That whatever I say should be beneficial. It should benefit me. My speaking should benefit me. Do you sometimes know when you're saying something that doesn't benefit you? I, I can feel it. I can actually feel, as the words are coming out of my mouth... I can feel that I'm polluting myself by saying those things. Do you have that experience? Yeah. yeah? 
you're like thinking, <laughs> just like putting poison into my body with what I'm saying. So, you know, to have what we say be beneficial to ourselves. Not, let me tell you how much I hate those people. Let me tell you all the injustices that were done to me in my life. And then to also, this is the hardest, this is the hardest, to say something that benefits the people who are, who are listening to us. You know, I think sometimes we speak just to vent. You know, again, it's just about me. And, or just to get sympathy or something like that, and, and the other person is going, do I really have to listen to this? So to speak in a way that benefits others, and sometimes we do need to talk about things that are painful and difficult in our lives, but to present it in a way that the other person will be benefited. That means knowing who to talk to, when to talk to them, what's the appropriate time, what's the appropriate place, and what's the appropriate mood. And a lot of that is, you know, also being upfront. Do I want you to help me or do I just want someone to listen to me? I mean, sometimes I say that as a listener. What do you want from me? Do you want me to help you solve your problem? Do you just want me to give you sympathy? You know, what, what direction do you want me to go? Do you want me to do something about this? Are you coming to me because you want me to fix something? And to say, think of that as a speaker. Why am I talking to this person? And we can even be upfront about it. Look, I'm not looking for a solution. You know, I just wanted to talk to someone. I remember one of my sons, you know, saying something to me about his wife. And I said, this, this, this. And he said, Mata, you know, I wasn't asking you to fix it. I just wanted to, tell, to talk to somebody. Said, you don't have to fix it. It's okay. He said, it's okay if it doesn't get fixed. I just needed to, to say something to somebody. So, yeah, I'm like, okay. So think of that, you know, why are we saying what we're saying? What, what is our purpose? What is our goal? And how will it be beneficial for the other, people, for the other person? And I, I, this, it's hard. It's real, this, is, this is a very difficult thing. But it's what makes it a loving exchange. When I'm revealing my mind, I should reveal my mind in a way that will uplift both me and you. Now, what about when we're receiving? So I can't always guarantee that the person speaking to me is thinking about beneficial. You know, when I'm speaking, I can think of that, but when I'm, when I'm hearing, it's just like I can't assume that people are going to think about what's an appropriate gift or what's an appropriate prasada. And I find, you know, receiving a wildly inappropriate gift, like some huge frame picture of the deities that weighs, you know, I don't know, 40 kgs, that, that dealing with that is fairly easy. I just find someone in the community, I say, hey, would you like a nice, beautiful frame picture? You know, give it to them. It, that's not that difficult. But when I'm hearing something that doesn't have a loving mood in it, I'm hearing something that really, the person is using me. They're hurting themselves. They're using me. That is a lot harder to deal with. So how to deal with that? And you can't always just walk away. I mean, sometimes you can't say, oh, you know, I have... Talk about truthful again. So I have something I have to do. Okay, that's true. I always have something I have to do. I, I mean, it was been at least 15 years before I said, I, I've done everything on my list. Now what am I going to do? So I always have something to do. But still, I might not have had something to do that moment if it was a different conversation. 
So sometimes we can't extricate ourselves. It just happens, you know. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane. Excuse me while I jump out the window. You know, sometimes there's somebody you live with. Or whatever, you know. Sometimes it's someone who has some authority over you. And you can't just walk away. So what are you going to do? So many years ago, I was, uh, what was in Croatia? Croatia, Slovenia, I can't remember. One of those countries. And uh, Beer Krishna Swami was giving a class on empathic communication, which is based on Marshall Rosenberg's uh, nonviolent communication. So basically out of respect for him, so my daughter, son-in-law, their daughter, and one of my grandsons are all his disciples, and I worked under him. I worked in his zone for 16 years, and I still consider that he's the GBC secretary that I work under. So out of respect for him, I thought I'll go. I mean, I wasn't particularly that interested, but I went, and I thought, well, this is interesting. Yeah, this is interesting. You can use this. Okay, fine. And I put some of it into, into practice over the next year. And then I went to the same retreat the following year, and he was giving part two. And I thought, okay, you know, it was useful last year, and I'll go again. And on maybe the third day, I went to him. I said, Maharaj, why do you study this and teach this? And he's since written a book on it called Vaishnava Compassion, I think, which you can get on Amazon. I said, why, why do you learn this and teach this? He said, it allows me to hear people and counsel people without getting drained. It allows me to hear and counsel people and get enlivened. And I'm like, I want that. I have one god sister who's a therapist, and she told me, don't ever call me on the phone in the evening. said, you can text me, but don't call me. I said, why is that? She said, all day people are telling me their problems, and in the evening I cannot tolerate hearing a human voice. And I, I had been finding, I mean, some of the things people talk to me about in, in confidence are, are very heavy. I mean, I think especially when you're a traveling preacher, people will tell you things that they wouldn't want anyone in their community to know. And they figure, you know, you're not going to show up for another year or two. And so it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's safe. And so people will tell you sometimes, like, really? <gasps> you know, well, things. It, it can be quite, quite difficult. Anyway, the, the technique that he used was that you connect with people's needs and emotions much more so than the content of what they're talking about. Because on the level of needs and emotions, guess what? We all have the same needs. It's, it's a universal connector. And we all, at various times, experience the same emotions. And therefore, you just experience this connection with someone. And I found this was very much related to what Prabhupada says in the preface to the Nectar of Devotion, one of my favorite parts of Prabhupada's books, where he says that everything everyone is doing is motivated by looking for rasa, which means, again, pleasure. Everybody is looking for some kind of happiness. Like what George Harrison wrote in the beginning of Krishna's book, everyone is looking for Krishna, some don't know that they are, but they are. And it's just that people are sometimes looking for rasa in the wrong way. Like we gave example of the second seven, second, seven secondary rasas, and how people are trying to enjoy anger rasa by yelling at their football, the opposing football team, or their own football team. There is a transcendental, sweet, ecstatic anger rasa. And when people are getting angry in this world, they're trying, they're looking for that super sweet, ecstatic anger rasa that they can have with Krishna, 
and instead they're enjoying it, or not really enjoying it, trying to enjoy it by getting angry at the political party or getting angry at the sports team or getting angry at their spouse or something. But what they're really looking for is Krishna. And I found I could connect with that. I could always connect with this person is looking for a rasa with Krishna. They may be looking at it in the wrong place and in the wrong way, but that's what they're looking for. And that, as a soul, I could connect with them as a soul. And then I found that connecting with them soul to soul in this way, on the level of spiritual needs and spiritual rasa, made it so I could feel enlivened and enthused, even if the specific content of the discussion was very disturbing. And even if the person's conscious motivation had nothing in it where they were trying to establish a loving relationship with me, they might have just been think it just been wanting to use me. And it's, it's really been transformative for me. And, and Prabhupada talks about this in his purport to Bhagavatam 1842, where he says, seeing in the darkness is not seeing, but seeing in the light is seeing. That having relationships on the material platform is entangling, but if we have a relationship soul to soul via the super soul, that is real relationships. So I think with all of these receiving, whether we're receiving prasadam or gifts or confidences, if we relate to the person's intention, ultimate intention as a soul, not even necessarily their superficial intention. I mean, like, I recently had a devotee write me with a whole long, very difficult explanation of what's going on in his life, and then telling me that he would like to separate from his wife, and they have a young baby, not even a year old. And after reading everything he wrote, I just wrote, are you looking for me just to give you permission? I said, are you writing to me as a senior devotee in ISKCON that I can just say, it's okay for you to leave your wife and infant baby? Is that what you want? That was just all I asked him. Is that what you want? And then he said, well, let me think about this a little more. And that was what he wanted. It was, it was actually quite obvious that he wanted to be able to say, Ermila said it was okay. So that was his, his superficial motivation but what was his deeper motivation? His deeper motivation was he wanted happiness, he wanted love, he wanted you know, communication and understanding between him and his wife. That was really what he wanted, and that's beautiful. That, that's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So I can relate to that. You know, if people come to me, which they do sometimes, you know, criticizing the leadership of ISKCON, which one could do till the end of time. There's always going to be something to criticize. You know, or criticizing this devotee or that devotee or this thing or that thing. You know, what do they want? They want purity. They want authenticity. They want a movement that's pure and authentic. That's why they're so upset about this or that. That's what they really want. And do I want that too? Sure. I don't like the way they're going about it. But I appreciate what they ultimately want. And sometimes you can say that to people. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes people are so disconnected from their deepest drives that they actually get offended if you bring it up. But at least one can understand. Oh, that's what this person really wants. And it doesn't even matter if you don't get it exactly right. It doesn't matter. You know, but finding something in them 
that resonates with some universal principle where you can feel that connection with them and you can feel that appreciation for them and I found that doing that means that I can be enlivened by any discussion with anybody about anything now I don't necessarily want to stick around for any discussion with anybody about anything you know especially people who are really criticizing devotees that I try to extricate myself but sometimes I can't sometimes I'm in a situation where I literally physically cannot extricate myself and I find that this is basically the way of receiving. So I do want to stop here because having a, um, a body, I have this very strange thing that I have to do this thing called eat. <laughs> and considering I have another class at 3.30, if I don't have enough time to eat and to digest before my class, I will be uh, useless at both digestion and at giving the class. So I hope you will excuse me because we could talk about these things for at least another hour or two, but we have been here since 10 o'clock this morning also. So uh, even, if you don't, even if you don't care about me and my having to eat, uh, please care about the other people here that they also probably have to move and get their blood circulating again. So thank you very much, and I'm, I'm, very, uh, I'm very grateful that you give me an opportunity to speak about these things. I always end up teaching myself mostly. And thank you for your hospitality here. So I'm just going to be giving one more class at 3.30. That'll be here, yeah? In the temple room? Thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. And all glories to Srila Prabhupada, without whom you wouldn't know any of this. Shri Prabhupada.